is uh, Johnny Marcogliese, AKA John, if the second part is too difficult. And I'd like to add my voice to the chorus of best wishes. Happy New Year. But Happy New Year in doing the will of the Lord in your life. That is my wish for you uh, today. I'm going to be doing some reading from Scripture, and it's all tied together, and I'm going to ask you to be patient as I try to tie up all of the loose ends. And uh, before we start, and before we start our reading, let's commit the service in prayer. Father, I thank you for all of these people, for every man, woman, and child in this place, and everyone within earshot, and that your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us and address us personally, individually, so that we would hear, so that we would hear what we need to be instructed in, disciplined, encouraged, and as a whole, to be built up for your honor and glory. May this be a year when we learn to submit and surrender to you more and more, that your will be done, that your will be done. We pray this in the name of the most excellent and the beloved Lord Jesus Christ, and all his people said, Amen. Our passage is from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 15, inclusively. But for purposes of context, in order that we can understand the, the thrust of my message this morning, I'll be reading some passages in the book of Acts that precede. And notably, I want to begin with Paul's calling in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and I don't know if you can see that. And this refers to Paul's or Saul's introduction and calling. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, referring to Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer. And the key word is suffer for my name. So this is our introduction to Saul. Let's follow that up with Acts uh, chapter 20, verses 22 to 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And finally, the passage that preceded, precedes our passage this morning are these two verses. These are the elders of the church of Ephesus in Miletus. And they refers to the elders of the church of Ephesus. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Fifteen verses of Acts chapter 21 that I'd like to read for you. 
and asking for you to follow along attentively. And we had torn ourselves away from them. We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us to the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre, from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Now, growing up as a young man, I grew up in a certain part of the island of Montreal, and many of you would understand what I'm about to say. The James Focos, the Nicazuolos, the Urbano Ciccarellis, the Charlie Caruanas would understand the language that I'm about to employ. When I was embarking in a trajectory in my life that was not good, when I was headed in the wrong direction, and this is long before the notion of intervention, people in my inner circle, my closest friends, family members and others, would approach me and they would start off with the address of, we are concerned. And if I was really heading off in the wrong direction, they would add the adjective, we are very concerned. So when people in my part of the city approached you and said, we are concerned, and even if they said, we are very concerned, it's not because they wanted to make sure that you had your winter tires on. It's not because your attire was mismatched in terms of color coding. It's because out of sincere and genuine concern, because they had a stake in my welfare and my well-being, 
They wanted to make sure that I corrected course. We are concerned. We are very concerned. So why am I bringing this up this morning? And what does it have to do with the passage? There are numerous encounters. There are numerous encounters that Paul has previous to him getting on that ship. And during the time he gets on that ship and stops from one place to another place and to another place. And there's a common thread here. The common thread is that people who love Paul, people who have a stake and an interest in his well-being and welfare, keep coming up and they tell Paul, we are concerned. We are very concerned. We are concerned about you going to Jerusalem. We don't want you to go there. Because from our understanding, bad things are going to happen to you there. The strongest instinct that a human has is the instinct for self-preservation. It's the instinct to flee from harm. Many of our fears drive us away from danger. We are constructed in a way not to head to a house that's on fire or for anyone who's pointing a gun at us, but rather to do a 180 and head in the opposite direction. So I want to ask you this morning, why is it? How can it be that Paul is headed towards danger. The Holy Spirit has made it abundantly clear to him that he needs to go to Jerusalem and eventually he will head to Rome. But first he needs to go to, to Jerusalem and when he does go to Jerusalem, the same pattern from the moment in time that he's called in Acts chapter 9 where God is speaking and says, you will suffer much for me. I have called this man and he will suffer much for me. And we will notice a recurring theme and response by Paul, his willingness to surrender, to submit. He is driven by such a strong conviction that he must do the will of God, that he behaves in a way which is counter to human instinct of self-preservation and survival. Whereas all the people who are concerned and who are very concerned and who love him and care for him are telling him in no uncertain terms to stop to turn around and to head in the opposite direction. We come across words like, we urged him. We come across expressions that the elders, were, the elders in Ephesus were so attached to him that ultimately they had to be torn away from him. Inasmuch as Paul had many enemies and adversaries 
and jealous people about the work and ministry that he was conducted, there were as many people in the local church who loved him dearly and didn't want to see any harm come to him. We are concerned. We are very concerned. And in the next slide, you will see an itinerary of the places that Paul goes, and he has encounters. And when you're concerned for someone, really concerned, what do you do? You care for them. You love them. You minister to them, even at a cost to yourself. And in all of these destinations, as Paul is getting off his ship and continuing to his ultimate destination, which is Jerusalem, he's meeting people. If you look at the notes, I've briefly surmised for you the encounters and the interactions that he's having with people. People from the church. And the commonality and the common denominator over and over again is that people are praying for him. People are weeping for him. People are expressing their care. People are expressing their concern and their care. And when Paul is with them, over and over, people open up their homes and their houses to Paul. And they practice hospitality. They are busy loving him. If your concern is genuine and sincere for the welfare and the well-being of someone, the rubber will hit the road. And it's much more than just empty words. There will be concrete gestures of care, of love, of affection, of esteem, of prayer, of self-sacrifice for someone that we care for. And you'll see that I'm going somewhere with this with regards to our eventual application. Concern generates care. Care is concrete. It's sincere. It's gentle. It's loving. We are concerned. We are very concerned for your well-being, Paul. Don't do this. Moving on to the next slide. The first three arrows show the concern, the care, and the conviction that people have as it is being poured into the life of Paul. People are concerned. They express care. And their care is sincere, concrete, and it costs them something. And what does Paul do in return? In his exchanges and his interactions with the saints, Paul himself reciprocates and expresses concern for the churches, the local churches, he expresses concern for the individuals that are coming to meet him. As a matter of fact, when they're weeping for him, he says, stop, you're breaking my heart. You are breaking my heart. So Paul is concerned for the churches. In the previous chapter, 
he warns the leaders that there will be wolves amongst them and that the enemies that have been tailing him throughout his three missionary journeys as we come to the tail end of the third missionary journey, that those same people will follow him and will be in their midst and they will seek to undermine the church. A lot has changed and a lot remains the same. We ourselves need to be vigilant and on guard amongst anyone who would try to drive us away from the truth as Scripture teaches and as the Holy Spirit leads us. So we too must be on guard to make sure that our local church, the bigger church, is not undermined as there are from time to time influences who would try to take us away from what Scripture teaches, from what the Spirit of Jesus teaches. So Paul himself expresses concern for individuals with whom he's meeting, interacting with. He's expressing his concern about all of the churches in which he's poured out his life. He himself is caring for them. He's caring for them. Never forget that in any venture that you have, any venture, any project, when you invest from your pocket, and I'm not speaking only about money, of your time, your resources, your efforts, your pain, your sweat, your tears, when you pour yourself out in that venture, you have a vested interest, you have a stake in its success. Paul has dedicated his life to his life mission as it was dictated to him in his revelation. That is, of spreading the good news of Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews. So he cares intimately for all of the people, and it's borne out in his writings as he knows individuals by name. He mentions individuals by name. Paul, in turn, as people are pouring out into him, he pours out his concern, his care, and ultimately, Paul recognizes his calling. What do I mean by a calling? What, does, what do we mean by calling? It's the mission of his life as a believer, as a preacher, as an evangelist, as a teacher. Paul is responding to his calling. The Spirit has made it abundantly clear to him that he needs to go to Jerusalem even if bad things are going to happen to him. He does not shy away. He doesn't withdraw. But he's responding to his calling. How does that speak to us this morning at the beginning of 2024? Because Paul is not the only one who has concerns and cares and is executing his calling as dictated by God. But each and every one of you here is called to carry out their own 
mission. It may not be high profile. It may be behind the scenes. It may be discreet. It may be something that you're called to do that people don't even take a note of. But do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. You're not only called into the family. You're called to work for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be it by being a testimony in deed or in word. Be it by expressing concern and love to another believer or to a stranger. Be it to express concrete care, gestures of love that are helpful and bring honor and glory to God. Each and every one of you, I wish, I wish and I want to reaffirm this morning, has a calling. Has a calling to care and to love and to be concerned about someone else. And I know that each, that any one person cannot save the world and solve all of its problems. Let's be realistic. But think of this just for a moment. If every believer could take care of one person, one, one, and have a positive impact on another life, in that you express the concern and care and love of one other individual. Some of you have been gifted richly by God, and you can do more than one. You can do two, three, four, five, because we serve the God of the exponent. We serve the God of the algorithm. We serve the God who is able to multiply above and beyond our wildest expectations. But let's start small. In 2024, who will I be concerned for? Who will I reach out for? Who has God called me to express care and love? One person, maybe two, maybe three. And I'm asking you to draw on your imagination. How different would the world be if every single believer could reach out to at least one other person and show them the love of Jesus through the help of the Holy Spirit? I'm just asking you to dream. Dream big. And if you don't know who that person is, if you ask God through His Holy Spirit to give you the conviction and the revelation of who that should be, I challenge you that God will show you and bring you to that individual. And more often than not, the question is, are you willing? Are you willing to do the will of God, which is to love your fellow man and share with him or her the good news? Are you willing? I don't need the answer, and you don't need to answer to me. 
But you need to answer to your maker. Because one day, and the day will come, and the day will come where every knee shall bow and where every tongue confess as to who God is and who Jesus is, moreover, we will have to render account. I'm not trying to instill fear in you, but I'm trying to remind you of what your calling is. And I'm trying, by the help of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to stir that conviction in you. There's a brother in the back there. I love him. And I wish you would be a bit more like him. I'm up here, and when I hear him say amen and hallelujah, it pumps me up. It just does. Now, it may very well be that he and I share the same heritage, the same cultural, ethnic heritage when we're concerned for someone and when we're very concerned. But I can sense some of you are not as audible, and that's fine. Excuse me? Yeah, we're Italian brethren. At least some of us are. At least some of us are. But it's all good. It's all good, okay? I don't want anyone to take offense to this. So thank you, brother. I appreciate it. And I, you know who you are, even though I'm not looking at you right now. Let's move on. Let's move on to Jesus. Any message where Jesus is not preeminent is a weak and faulty message. And I want you to hold your teachers accountable. If Jesus is not lifted up on a Sunday morning or during your Bible study, there's something wrong, terribly wrong. Why am I bringing up Jesus right now? Excuse me for the St. Leonard gesture there. But why am I bringing up Jesus right now? If we look at the pattern of the life of Paul, we notice that he is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus himself had to go to Jerusalem where he would accomplish his life mission. Jesus himself would encounter false accusations, persecutions, trials, suffering. Paul embraced it. The Lord Jesus Christ embraced it even more. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ is exemplifying when he does all of these things that are not necessarily pleasant? Jesus exemplifies obedience. Obedience. You know... In the Western culture, obedience is not a big thing because we're all into, or at least the world is trying to teach us, you know, I need to be myself. And my rights are really important and I need to be true to myself and I got to be who I am. As believers, we're called to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow who? Jesus. Who does Jesus obey? Who does Jesus obey? Very good. Excellent. His Father, God. Jesus exemplifies perfect and excellent obedience. Jesus exemplifies perfection in the relationship between a child and God the Father, between the Son 
and God the Father. Jesus was concerned. Jesus was concerned for all of mankind. Not one person, not two or three. But every creature that was made into the likeness of God. Jesus was very concerned. Because he left his rightful place at the right hand of God. And he left glory so that he could be obedient and carry out the work of redemption and the work of reconciliation between mankind and his Father. Jesus was concerned. Jesus cared. Jesus laid it out all, every part of him. And Jesus ministered to the small needs and to the big needs. Jesus was busy going around being a good guy. No, not a good guy. The best guy. The guy. Healing, helping, encouraging, always being the best of the best. Personifying excellence. I'm sorry that the English language doesn't have enough words for me to express how good Jesus is in everything that he says and does. I feel frustrated at times and my wife keeps telling me, John, you have too many words. And she's right. She says, John, you talk too much. And she's very right because more often than not, I talk too much. And I wish I could take some things back. There's some of you who should talk more. I should talk less. But in one area, I wish I had more words. In my ability to express the essence, the core essence of Jesus and how our Jesus does everything well. And actually more than well. So Jesus was concerned. He cared. Jesus didn't do things a moitié, moitié. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression. C'est pas mon problème. Arrange-toi avec tes troubles. Okay, that's a colloquialism in Québécois. Means, you know what? This is really not my problem. And let them deal with it. I don't know if any of you understand that. Probably not very many of you. But Jesus was not of that ilk. Jesus was the exact opposite. And he did it with a massive conviction. And he responded to his calling. Let's look at a few verses that show how Paul himself walked into the steps of Jesus. And in turn, why am I telling you this? Where we individual, individually are called to walk in the steps of Jesus as well. Not in the steps of Paul, but in the steps of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. By the way, just for me to know in the future, do you see that well? Can you read it? Good. Because I can't see it in the back, so I need to read from my notes. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to where? To Jerusalem. And do what? And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It doesn't sound as if it's something that I would head to. Peter was concerned, so he took him aside to express his concerns. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, exclamation mark, he said, this shall never happen to you, exclamation mark. Have you ever wondered, why is Peter saying this? Is he acting out of self-interest? Or is he genuinely concerned about the welfare of Jesus? I don't believe it's a one or the other answer. I believe it's both. Peter and a whole bunch of other guys had tied their destiny and their welfare and their future to that of Jesus. No Jesus, no good for us. But I do believe that Peter genuinely loved Jesus and did not want him to have this fate. This shall never happen to you. The man of conviction, by honoring his call, responds as follows. It's pretty strong, but it's the truth. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus setting the record straight that he would not be deterred, that he would not be swayed, that he would not be discouraged from being obedient and accomplishing his life mission. And Jesus tells him quite plainly, you're looking this and you see the small picture. Peter, you see the human concerns. I see the big picture, the biggest picture, the picture in which every soul of every man, woman, and child rests upon. I see the big picture, the picture, from the widest lens possible. And I come to do the will of God. I come to obey Him and to honor Him in achieving my life mission. This was forecast and prophesied from time past. In Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7, it speaks of the Lord Jesus and His determination and His resolve in carrying out his life's work. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Notwithstanding the circumstances of his death. The Lord Jesus prophetically is saying. I will not be put to shame. And if you know what a flint is. It's pointy. It's sharp. 
and it directs you in one direction. I have set my face like a flint. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is speaking again. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, to meet his destiny head on. And in Gethsemane, the character of Jesus is revealed. His excellence, his submission and surrender comes to the surface. It comes to life. And in total and absolute agony, the Lord Jesus is praying as he's shedding tears of blood. Not blood-like, blood. He's sweating blood. And in his prayer, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Paul is working, is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You and I are called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Anyone who tells you that your life, once you become a believer, will be smooth sailing is deceiving you and lying to you. More often than not, there will be moments of triumph and there will be countless times of joy. But there will be times of hardship and suffering. I'm telling you the way it is. You can choose to believe me or just to set aside the words that I just spoken. But it's not me saying it. It's scripture. So if you don't want to believe me, that's okay. If you want to turn your back on scripture, you deal with it. But we are called to suffer. Is it something we run towards to? I'll be honest with you, more often than not, I don't want to. But is it something that we that is not foreign to the Christian experience if we decide to be obedient to his calling and if we respond to walking in the steps of Jesus? There are countless scriptures one of which tells us to take up our cross and to follow him. Jesus is the most excellent model of being an obedient child of God. And we have an illustration here that confirms what I've been saying, where we have three concentric circles of, of Jesus' concern, care, and calling, and it's not only Jesus that was concerned. There was someone else who was very concerned about creation. From Genesis to Revelation, from the very, very beginning at the fall of man, who was concerned about mankind? It was God. This is nothing new, and it's not a recent development. The character of God is disclosed for us from the very beginning of Scripture. In the first few chapters of Genesis, God is concerned for mankind. God has a plan from the very beginning. And it's illustrated beautifully in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Another prophetic utterance. You'll notice that the pronoun used is us. Us refers to the Trinity. 
of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit working in unison. And they ask the question. It's a rhetorical question to which they already have the answer. Whom shall I send? And who shall go for us? Jesus. 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 We have a glimpse into the beautiful character of God in that God not only sends a trusted advisor second best. Scripture teach, refers to Jesus as the apple of his eye. And being the apple of one's eye in the English language is something that is central. It's the very, very best. It's what is the most dear to you. We all try to protect our eyes. <laughs> we don't want anything to touch our eyes. What does God do? God sends the very, very best. What is the most dear to Him? So, for the so-called philosophers in the world who think about the big issues in life, is there a God? And if there is a God, is He concerned about us? Does He care for us? Does He call us? Does He want have to have anything to do with us? And I challenge every person that if you are sincere in the innermost recesses of your being, not with other people, just with yourself, and you cry out to God, just you and God, God, if you're there, show me. Reveal yourself to me. If you are sincere, I have no doubt that God will reveal himself to you. The problem is not so much with God or his son. The problem is about willingness. Will I? Will I be open? It's incredible how the people who are supposed to be the most progressive and the most open-minded to all types of other ideas are so closed when it comes to God. Irony. And they always, they've hijacked the best of the English language for their own purposes. And I ask you, are you willing? Are you open? Are you receptive? And you don't have to scream it at the top of your lungs. You just have to whisper it to God in your innermost being. God, if you're there, show me. God, if you're there, I am willing. God, if you're there, I am open. And God is no man's debtor. He'll take you up on it. He'll take you up on it. Take that challenge in 2024. If you hear my voice this morning and you hear these words about God's care and concern for you, about Jesus' care and concern for you, and Jesus responding to his calling, 
Be open and respond to it. What do you have to lose? What do you have to gain? Amen? I like you too. You too I like very much. <laughs> we're going to close off with, um, we're going to skip the, pa the next passage, but let's go to some applications for us. Because all of this is great theology from God to Christ to Paul. But at the end of the day, what are the lessons that can be taught or that we can apply? Am I convicted to do the will of God as He reveals it to me, to you, through His Holy Spirit? And God will reveal His will to you. Again, if you're open and sincere and you pray. Who am I concerned about and who will I care for that individual? Which individual in 2024 will I care for? You know what they call that? It's an old-fashioned word that we use in Christian circles. It's called discipleship. Who will I disciple? Can I disciple someone? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will you be perfect at it? Absolutely not. But with God's help, you can love someone and take them by the hand and walk alongside them. How can I be praying for the persecuted and suffering church around the world? Persecution has not stopped with Paul and with Jesus. Rather, it has increased. In the West, it's subtle and nuanced because we are being minimized and marginalized. So people are not necessarily being put to jail and beaten, but the church is under attack from a different direction, that of complacency. In other parts of the world, it's in your face. We hear about the Middle East, and brothers and sisters, as much as the Middle East is important, it is important, there are various places in Central America, in South America, in Asia, in China, in Africa, in Sudan, in South Sudan. No one ever talks about South Sudan. The war has been going on for a lot longer than what just is happening right now in the Middle East. Not to minimize it. And Christians are being persecuted in Sudan. Brothers and sisters, how can I be praying for the persecuted and suffering church around the world? These are the challenges for 2024. And I'd like to leave you on a happy note, on a blessing from Scripture. It's found in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. My wife dug it up for me and says, this one would be good. And when I read it, I said, yes, this one is not only good, it's very good. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, 
to whom be glory forever and ever. And all his people said, Father, thank you. Thank you for being alive and vibrant and meaningful as much as you've ever been. May you be, this is our exhortation and wish this morning, that you be even more relevant and meaningful to each and every one of us. More today than yesterday. More tomorrow than today. It's hard, but we have the Holy Spirit. We're not orphans. We have the great counselor that empowers us. Help us. Help us to do your will. This is our earnest desire. We pray in the, most, in the name of the most excellent one.